Thank you, choir, very much. Thank you, Julie. Wonderful, wonderful playing. And Alan, um, as Alan was talking, I kept thinking, have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? No. <laughs> yeah. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> So today we're looking at um, grace, the gift of God's presence, building his people, that we've been brought near as one new humanity and a dwelling place for God. Whoops, here we go again. Go back to the text, all right. They almost, uh, the next week I'm going to talk about accountability and the people of God and out of accountability, they almost took the clicker away from me. I had to negotiate simpler slides. Hopefully it goes a little easier, but uh, we'll see. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When, when Paul says, therefore, it means based upon all that preceded. Remember last week that he, Paul says, you were dead in transgressions and sins. But God has made you alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith to do good works which he has planned. That's in the backdrop of everything today. Therefore, remember. Remembering is important. We all need to do it as a, as a constant exercise. Things that we need to remind ourselves of. Remember where God has brought you from then you can know where you are at the moment and be ready for where you're going. Paul says, remember that formerly you were Gentiles. All the Ephesians that Paul's writing to most likely would have been Gentile. They would have been Greek and Roman and other uh, nations. Remember, it was, uh, Ephesus was a, a trading port. A uh, big commercial center, people from all over their world would have been in there. But very few of them likely Jewish. Called uncircumcision, that would be a sneer that the Jews who were circumcised as a rite uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Judaism, of, of being part of Israel. And, and so they would sneer those who weren't. Said they were separate from Christ. In the beginning... Uh, as, as the church was forming, they still had the idea, the early church was very Jewish, and still had the idea that since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, that what Jesus was doing was still part of Judaism. And so in that sense, the, the, the Gentiles would have been outside of Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, outside the kingdom of God, as they would have understood it. Foreigners to the covenants of promise, the covenants made to Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, who were the heart and soul of the Israelite people, of Judaism, which gave them their identity 
and which gave them hope. And therefore, he says, they were without that hope. And, and that would have brought in the mind uh, for the Jews that without hope in the day of the Lord, when the day would return, that they would receive judgment and they would be taken to death. And most importantly, without God. They would be godless as the Jews would have understood them. They, would not, they did not know God, did not know God's life, and therefore could not possibly live a godly life at all. But then there are those wonderful words, but now. Sometimes you just have to love those words because they're telling us that, man, it wasn't very good over here, but now things have changed, right? You ever had that feeling, something happened, and all of a sudden you just give out that sigh of relief, now. But now everything has changed. You have been brought near. God has included you in what he is doing. You're no longer outsiders, but you're insiders because of what God has done in Christ. We talked about that last week. The sacrifice that Jesus made upon the cross, which provides forgiveness, which shows God's mercy, which enables people to now have relationship with God, the sin barrier removed. And instead of on the outside, separated by God's wrath, now on the inside, in relationship that God may write with him by the blood of Jesus. There's actually another text here somewhere. All right. I definitely will lose it now. <laughs> the next, there it is, okay. For he, Paul says, for he himself... Jesus, who died upon the cross and made the sacrifice, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Okay. Again, that word for, which in this case could mean because. Because of what God has done, we have been brought near. By the death of Christ, peace has come in the act of sacrifice. He himself is our peace. Peace is a person. It's personal. Peace is not a program. Peace is not a process. And peace is not the action of power we sometimes are confused into thinking that war makes peace, but war just makes more war. It's not the execution of power over others. That's what the Romans did. They kept peace by the sword, but that peace was just on the external, the outside. Inside, there was war everywhere, and it broke out. He said he made the two into one, no longer having reason to fight each other, to hold each other at enmity, to have hostility. We live and work together in Jesus Christ. We now have the same purpose. We're going the same direction. 
He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, the hostility. Israel began to see nations, as I said, as outsiders, even as enemies. Actually, at the time Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, he was in jail in Rome. He had been arrested in Jerusalem because uh, he, he was accused of taking a Gentile into the part of the temple that only Jews could go into. And I kind of allude to that again several times as he talks about this. And so they were seen as enemies, and, and the feeling became mutual, even among the Gentiles looking at the Jews. He said, setting aside the law, that was the provisions that separate the Jew and the Gentiles, portions that was impossible for Gentiles to keep, like going into the temple uh, and, and, uh, and, and other things. And therefore, because they couldn't keep these portions of the law, they were always felt to be inferior. They could never live up to the standards that, uh, that Judaism had. God's purpose was to create himself one new humanity, making peace to reconcile both to God and also to each other. Reconciling means to restore friendship. Friendship is a very important word. It is to bring harmony. Uh, when Julie plays the piano, she puts those keys down and those notes are struck on the, on the uh, strings and harmony, they work together, right? And they sound beautiful. It also means to resolve differences. That's how harmony results, isn't it? To take those differences and work at them until they can be resolved. It is an internal mission of the people of God to live at peace. God put to death their hostility, he says. Through the cross, he put to death the old humanity, the bearer, of sin that became the barrier between us. Hostility can be religious as, uh, as between the Jews and the Gentiles. It can be emotional because of things that have gone down between us in our lives, as well as physical at times. We actually put barriers up uh, to keep each other out. And it says God preached peace to those far and to those near. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Paul preached that first great sermon. He concluded by saying that God now welcomes those who were far off. In his mind, I'm not sure if he knew exactly what he was saying, but God had opened the door to the Gentiles to become part of what he was doing. In Isaiah 56, there's a promise that on the day of the Lord, the house of God will be for foreigners. Now, for Jews, that would have been a very hard word for them to hear. And for us, sometimes it's a hard word because we have some people we think probably are not really worthy who are outside, and to say that God welcomes them in is sometimes difficult for us, isn't it? We just really don't want to hear that word. And it would have been difficult, but that's what he says. He says that they will be welcomed to the holy mountain of God in Jerusalem on the day of the Lord. God shows respect for both Jews and Gentiles. There's no peace without respect. Respect for the image of God in every human being that we meet, that we know, that crosses our path in life. Humans, all of whom are loved by God, for God so loved the world. 
right? Everyone. And again, he says four, perhaps in this light, because both have been brought near to God, we both have access to the Father through one spirit. Now in relationship with God and thus with each other. It's in that relationship to God that we can work out all the things that stand between us and become reconciled, drop the hostility, and go forward as the people of God. The prophets spoke of this, of the promise of God's spirit given to his people. In the book of Hebrews, it says we can now come boldly before the throne of grace. What a promise. Next. There we go. They're helping me. (laughs) Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit." It's all all lost. Consequently, where are we there? Okay, now, the next one, there we go. I think that's it, isn't it? Yes. Consequently, because Jesus is our peace, God has created one new humanity, reconciled to him and to each other. You're no longer foreigners, again, outsiders with no standing. Within the people of Israel, an outsider had no standing. They could not be a part of the leadership. They could not participate in, some, in large parts of their lifestyle. The same thing would be true of the Greeks and the Romans. If you weren't worshiping the Greek gods, you would be an outsider. You couldn't go into the marketplace and sell. You couldn't go into the marketplace and buy without making a sacrifice to the local god. You couldn't participate in the council. You couldn't even bring something before the council for their consideration. Unless coming in, you made a sacrifice to the local deity. Outsiders. No place, no standing, perhaps even seen as enemies. As above, in Paul's time, there were barriers in the temple. One, one place that Jewish males could come in, behind that, with a, with a line carefully drawn, was where Jewish women could come. And behind that, with a careful line, was where the Gentiles could come. And they didn't dare cross the line. As I said, Paul got in a lot of trouble for the perception that that's what he had done. As Paul, was, uh, Paul had visited Caesarea, another city uh, uh, in, in Israel, uh, and Paul had preached there in Acts chapter 23, and around the time Paul is writing this in prison in Rome, Jews and Syrians were killing each other in the streets. Later on, around 70 A.D., the Jews would rebel against uh, the Romans, And you remember the story, how they got pushed to the Masada and the massacre that took place there. Enemies. But instead of foreigners, you have become, and Paul draws four metaphors here. Metaphors are word pictures. Pictures that draw something in our mind. They're just words on a page, but when we see those words, something happens inside, and it just opens up. And so these four word pictures, he says... You have become fellow citizens. A citizen is a member of a state or a city that offers allegiance to that state or city. 
has obligations of certain kinds to that city or state, but also is given protection and given certain privileges. We say that uh, in our Constitution that everybody was, is, is, is uh, created uh, with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have a Bill of Rights attached to it, so, so, so people who don't have power can be protected from those who do. We also have a, a principle of due process, that everyone is considered innocent until proven guilty. Those are the things that our, uh, uh, that our state, our the being citizens of our country, provide for us. And that's what Paul's saying, that now they are citizens of the people of, uh, like the people of God and therefore uh, are, are given those uh, not just obligations, but protections and privileges. Members of his household, he says. In Paul's time, that would be everyone living over under the same roof. That would involve not only an immediate family, but all their extended family. It could be extended back to grandparents or great-grandparents. It could be extended forward to grandkids or great-grandkids. It could be aunts, uncles, and cousins all living together. And in addition to that, everybody who might work in that household might be someone who, who cooks, someone who cares for the children, someone who pairs, repairs the roof. And sometimes these people who worked in the household became such a part of the household that they were adopted and became like family in the household. And in some cases where there aren't children to inherit, they would inherit what the children would have inherited as adopted into the family. We become part of God's own family. Paul calls, he uses that image of adoption himself and says that God has adopted us into his household. And because of that, we are become joint heirs with Christ. Jesus told the story of the prodigal. That the prodigal, when he went to, to run off, went to his father and says, you owe me my inheritance. And his father gave it to him because of who he was, his son. And now as we have now become part of the household of God, we become joint heirs with Christ of all that God is doing in his creation. Built that, that household built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. The word cornerstone is a compound word. It's, it's the first stone that is laid in the corner, and every other stone is built on it, out and up. So it sets the standard for all the rest. If it's straight and in the right place, all the rest will be straight in the right place. And so that Christ is the cornerstone, and he's straight, and he's in the right place. And everything built from him, exterior walls, interior walls, everything takes its place from him. Built in conformity, in line with the life of Jesus. Think of all the images of Jesus that you have as you've read your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus. Think of those images. And now you have a picture of what God's doing in his people. Right? Jesus, the chief cornerstone, and all that God's doing in building his people is built upon that image that you have. And he's doing that in and through us. In him, the whole building, all the people, as God has been working and continues to restore, are joined together, joined together. That literally means fitly framed together. Every piece belongs where it's put. Nothing is out of place. Nothing is misplaced. I, I, meant, I, I meant to make a picture of some of the things that, that my grandson and I make with uh, Legos. And boy, there are a lot of things out of place there. <laughs> it's really pretty obvious. But in God's building, 
It's not out of place. He forms each of us into his building where he wants us to be. And that building rises to become a holy temple. A temple is a place of dedication to the worship of a god. In Israel, they had the temple built by Solomon. Beautiful temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That one was destroyed, and, and Zerubbabel came back and built another one. Not nearly as beautiful, but it went into disrepair, and eventually Herod rebuilt it, and it was magnificent uh, in the day of Jesus and uh, of Paul. The worship in the temple was vibrant. It was joyous. Here they brought sacrifices to God to seek the face of God, to seek his mercy, his forgiveness, to seek the hope that he alone could give to them in their lives. And he says, you too are being built together to become a dwelling where God lives. A dwelling is a structure that provides protection. It's a roof over the head. It's walls. But more than just a, a place of protection, it becomes a place of residence. And supremely, it becomes a home. The dwelling where God lives by His Spirit, joining us together, the visible church and the invisible church, is a building in which God lives. He makes it His home. Just let that rattle around there for a while. So now remember where God has brought you from, then you can know where you are and be ready for where you are going. Next, hey, pictures. I love pictures. I'm, a, I'm kind of a picture person. I like to see things. So the text that says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that God made as the heart of the covenant between him and Abraham. And, and as Israel began to see it between them, and, because they are that great nation that would come from Abraham. So God in his grace called Israel to begin the process of restoring his creation. His dream was, and, he, and this, was, this is what he did, is that through Israel, grace would go to all peoples. Now, Israel kind of faltered under that, as we'll see in a moment. But because of Jesus, it has been fulfilled, right? Because Jesus is from Israel, as we see. But just the same, this is God's plan, that all peoples would be blessed through Israel by his grace. God's purpose was to restore his creation, as we talked about. He made this promise to Abraham. It became a covenant between him and, and God and between Israel and God that made them the nation that would be the light to all nations, bringing redemption. But something happened. There we go. From the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, in, that's in Assyria, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarsish, clear across the Mediterranean in the other direction. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying his, the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarsish to flee from the Lord. Something happened. Israel began to misunderstand the grace that God had shown to them in making them a nation and calling them the apple of his eye. They saw themselves as privileged. 
They saw everyone else as a threat to that privilege that God had given them. That's when the word Gentile began coined by them to designate all non-Jewish people, all of them who aren't us. Eventually, it became a term of contempt and derision. Gentiles were often, in the Jewish writings, compared to dogs. Now, in their days, in our day, dogs like family members, okay? You see so many commercials for dogs, it's unbelievable. But in their day, it wasn't. Dogs were, were normally wild. They ran the streets. They were a nuisance and sometimes dangerous. Uh, and so we didn't, they didn't feed them from the table. Remember the story of Jesus and the woman that came to him, the Gentile woman came to him and asked him for something. He says, why give uh, the children's food to the dogs? or to the pigs, and, he said, and she says, well, at least they get the scraps that fall from the table. And Jesus said, uh, uh, because of her understanding, that she had great faith. But that's what they would thought. Dogs get the scraps, maybe. They are unfit to enjoy the benefits of the promise of God. So Israel turned in on themselves, into themselves. Their own health and wealth became their ambition. They were blessed, and others were cursed. That's their mindset. And Jonah became the perfect metaphor for this. For God called him to go to Nineveh and preach. And he knew just as soon as he preached the word of God in Nineveh, they would repent. That's what the word of God does, doesn't it? It works God's work, we're told, right? It does what God sends it out to do every time, accomplishes his purpose. And so he just knew when he preached the word of God, they would repent and God would bless them instead of cursing them. And he wanted them cursed. They were enemies. They were mortal enemies. They had brought death to Israel, Israelite people, over time, and he did not want to bless them at all. Death. So God had him swallowed by a big fish. And the fish, there were, there was no place to go. And so he gave in. He went to Nineveh. He preached. They repented and were spared. And Jonah was very unhappy. He wasn't really converted in that fish. He just was resigned to do what God told him to do. And then when God, when they repented and God blessed them, he went up on a mountaintop, angry, waiting for God to curse them. That's how he spent the rest of his life, we see. Israel is like Jonah. As I said, it's a perfect metaphor for Israel. He had a well-defined sense of enemy. He had a well-defined sense of worthy and unworthy. And so he folded his arms and they folded their arms and waited for God's judgment to come on all the people who were not us. The next picture, good. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. We've seen that. If this, if this illustration was right, th this would just be one circle. But I wanted you to see the process as it was going on. But in, in, in reality, the process would be that all three circles would be perfectly coincide, that God would bring his people together and dwell in their midst, as we were talking about. God restoring his creation, the one humanity out of both Jew and Gentile. That's what God is, is working to do. Okay? Let's see if we got another one. There we go. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. And he, he proposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So again, God, God's purpose for us is the same as it was. Now Israel and the Gentiles have been called together in the church, the continuation of what God had begun to do in Abraham. And now we in grace are to reach all peoples for God. That, that, that commission stays the same. The danger for us is, like it was for Israel,
the danger for us as God's people today is when we have a well-defined sense of enemy. When we so define our sense of enemy that we begin to blur our vision and not see the vision of God for us, but see our own vision. To have such a well-defined sense of worthy and unworthy that we immediately begin to categorize everybody. This person's worth my attention. This person isn't worth my attention. Right? So easy. Yet Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Luke, love your enemies. He says, if you love those who love you, you're no better than anybody else. Instead, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Remember, Paul's writing this in prison. So he says, consequently, your identity has become members of the kingdom of God, family living together, a place dedicated to the worship of God, a place that God calls home. There we go. Whoops. The, day, the difficulty is that we have a competing sense of identity. This would represent me to some degree, teacher, father, leader. There are all kinds of identities that we have, and those become important to us. It shows us our place in our culture. It shows us our place in life around us. It's our marker, right? It's our marker so we can see where we fit in. And God has for us an identity of being part of his home. We call it church. I, I kind of hesitate because we have all kinds of images of what church means, but God calls it that dwelling place, the people of God, where God dwells in their midst. And our identity should be that people that God dwells in our midst. You were, he says, you are. Unfortunately, we, we're immersed in our culture. Now, when I say that, I'm not blaming us. Everybody's immersed in a culture, aren't they? Everybody is born to culture, and that culture has an influence upon us from the time we take our first breath, well, actually, before that, actually, but just the same, until the time we take our last breath. Culture is always influencing us, isn't it? We come to believe everything is, in our culture, we, become, we, we tend to become to believe everything is centered in number one, ourselves. Look out for number one. We hear it all the time. Uh, have it your own way. Uh, we do it all for you. You deserve it. You deserve to feel this when you ride your car. You deserve to feel this while wearing the clothes you wear. You deserve to feel this by eating the, feed, the, the food you eat. You deserve all these things to make you who you want to be. In part, we listen to the culture. It tells us who we should be. It says, if you want to fit in, you'll do this, you'll do this, you'll do this, you'll do this. If you really want to be a part, you'll become this, Right? The messages are everywhere, all the time. They're very strong messages, and, and sometimes they're hard to deal with. In addition, we have our own sense of idea of uh, the person we would wish to be. All this necessitates the formation of our own dreams, our own ambitions, our own achievements, our own pleasure, our own everything. And we guard these carefully, don't we? Against the attempt to change or replace them against our will. We often call this freedom, the freedom to be who I want to be, which our culture worships, and I think sometimes even more than we worship God, we worship freedom. And sometimes we actually confuse the two, but they're not the same. So one of the difficulties I went to, back, there we go. 
Good, that showed up. It didn't show up so well in mine, but it does. So here I have a picture of me with my identity as a teacher. And popular religion means that I expect God to become part of my life. See, I've got this all figured out. I have my place established. So in order not to disrupt that, I simply ask God to take a part in who I am, right? But to keep the rest of my life intact, just the way I want it to be. In order to do so, we may simply invite God into our lives as they are. We may give him a special place on certain days to include certain events, but normally we would not allow him to change our identity. At least we wouldn't want him to. There's there's no way of saying we can't allow him to, but we wouldn't want him to. We want to be who we want to be. And so we ask him to assist us in our identity. Say, God, I'm going to be the best university professor I possibly can be, and God, your job is to make me that way. Your job is to give me comfort and assurance when I'm struggling. Your job is to, um, is to enable me to move forward, to give me all the resources I need. Your job is to break down the barriers that stand in my way and keep me from going where I want to go, right? That's kind of the way we look at it sometimes. And that would be popular religion, that God is here to give us comfort and assurance. He is the fire insurance policy that keeps us from burning in the fires of hell. And so we just kind of like get that fire insurance policy, put it in our pocket, and go about our merry way, saying, I'm good. Right? That's what we've told ourselves. We've told ourselves that over and over again, so much so that we actually are starting to believe it. That God is on our side in everything. It doesn't matter if my mind is totally messed up, if my emotions are way out of whack, and my desires and ambitions are totally opposite of God. God is with me and on my side all the time in everything, right? Every day is Friday. Some of you will get that, right? Right? Isn't that it? At the same time, we may sanitize water down the bold life and teaching of Jesus. It's bold, folks. There's nothing milk toast about that. To make it acceptable to our culture so that we don't have to be countercultural in anything but can remain in the mainstream and blend in and get the pats on the back that we need to go on. But instead, God's notion is our identity is that of the people of God that now what God really says is this is the people of God, and what I'm asking you is come in and be part of that. The other way around, but now you become part of what God is doing. As we've seen, God has chosen us, given us an identity as his home, the church, the people of God. For Paul, church was not a physical building, not an organization, but the sum of those called out by God to be his people. The word that's used is ecclesia, those who are called out. That's translated church. It's very personal. This was God's plan from the beginning, that humanity would be co-workers with God. But we didn't like being co-workers, did we? God gave us skills, abilities, minds, creative, uh, all kinds of stuff God gave us to work with him in the creation, but but that wasn't good enough. Co-creators, what's that? I want to be it, right? I want to be on top of the heap. That's that's all a Wizard of Vid cartoon one time where a guy was sitting outside of stables at a desk and this guy came up to him to get a job. He says, I, I want a job. He says, what kind of job do you want? He says, I want to be on top of the heap. Next thing you see, he's in the stable manure pile shoveling. 
We want to be on top of the heap, don't we? God has gifted us all with minds and skills and personalities, but sin destroyed our relationship with God and our ability to work with him. And so we, we want to be, as the famous poem Invictus, we want to be the captain of our own soul, right? Calling the shots. But now as God in grace restores his creation and calls us together, join together as his people, in him we become citizens of the kingdom of God under his authority and plead allegiance to him and to his plan for his people. And all of the benefits that we receive from that are the benefits of being part of his kingdom. All right? He has called us to become his household, his family, under his roof, taking his identity. That's what we do, right? Our father and our mother. We get the sperm and we get the egg from our father and mother. and We take, our, we take who we are from our parents, right? We become literally them. At least half of each. And we follow him as the head of the household. We become a temple, a place where God is worshipped above our own dreams, above our own ambitions, even above freedom itself. We become ultimately the people within, the people within whom God dwells. Think of that. I mean, really. Collectively, people through whom God works, through whom God shows grace to others, through whom God restores his creation to himself. This requires what theology calls conversion. The dictionary says conversion is the act of changing in form, character, or function. Our identity changes. We're no longer self-determining individuals, striving to achieve our personal goals. But as Paul says in Romans 12, we become living sacrifices who lay ourselves upon the altar for God, and we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know what the will of God is, and we can do that as second nature. The problem is not... The problem is not the struggle with our culture that resists us in trying to live out our identities as people of God. That's not the problem. The problem is our struggle to embrace our identity as a 24-7 dwelling place of God. That's the real struggle, isn't it? To, to, to embrace that identity and say, I am 24-7. We together are 24-7 the dwelling place of God, the place that God that's going to change everything, isn't it? I mean, literally, that'll change everything. Nothing will be the same. To accept within our own minds and hearts that God is calling us to be ourselves is this different way. The resolution of this struggle, what Scripture, here I include Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, James, all of them, what Scripture calls repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, a change of mind, we translate it repentance. It means a change of life, a change of direction. I have been going this way, following the culture and being the person that I believe life has called me to be. And Jesus says, over here, buddy, this is the kingdom of God. Go this way. And I turn around and go this way. That's what it talks about. It's a change of mind. And if, if the mind is the central processing unit, a change of mind will be a change of direction, right? And that's what he's talking about. A change of mind that brings a change of direction in life. Turning around and going the other way, following Jesus, rather than following what everyone else says life should be. And that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. They've grown up believing all this stuff, just like us, from their culture, from the Greek and Roman. I mean, they, they were blessed, the Greek and Roman culture, if you go back and look. It's good stuff from a human point of view. We've taken a lot of it and part, made it part of ours. But he says, no, now you're to turn around and go the other direction and follow me into the kingdom of God. And now, 
we must decide. Is the life of God worth all of that? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, I just thank you that you are such a God that you can create everything from nothing. You can sustain your universe and you can bring it to your perfect end. And God, I just thank you. And I, and I pray, Lord, it's a humbling thought to thank you that you have chosen us to be part of that. The great God of all the universe, you don't need us, but in grace you've chosen us. You've chosen us to restore us to you, to share your life with us once again when we, when we had gone and followed death, but now been made alive in Christ. And that, Lord, you have gifted us, especially as your people, to use us to restore your whole creation. It's very humbling, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would get a sense of what this is that you're calling us to be and to do. And now, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us in terms of who we see ourselves really as. What, what is our real identity? And, Lord, that you would enter into that struggle with us and that by your spirit, you would show us that you dwell within our lives. And that, Lord, you would teach us how to live in such a way that we know we are, we are your dwelling, that we know we are your people, and we know that our real purpose is to speak your love, your mercy, your grace, to show your kindness to all of creation around us so that you continue to work through us. Lord, speak to us and remind us of this every day. And help us to honor you in everything that we are and all that we do as we pray in your name. Amen.